Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. and welcome to hell this is under consultation an episode by episode podcast guide through the uk's greatest video game challenge tv show games master i am one of your hosts luke owen a recovering championship manager addict and timing it just a bit better than luke i am ash versus this episode aired on the 1st of November 1994, Sonic and & Knuckles and Star Wars Rebel Assault are top of their charts, while SimCity 2000 takes over Doom 2 in the PC charts. The Lion King is still top of the box office, but we have a new chart topper with Pato Benton's Baby Comeback. New purely in the, this is the first time this version is the top of the charts, because whilst this is the Pato Benton version with collaboration from members of UB40, this is in itself a cover of a song by the Equals that was released in 1968 and written by Eddie Grant. And even then, in 1968, this was not kind of the first exposure for the song because it was originally, originally released as a B-side in 1966. So what was once old is new again, and it is not the first time we've had an old song come back to top our charts, and it certainly won't be the last. It certainly has, baby, come back. Um, yeah, like we, we've had a fair number of them in our podcast run thus far. And this one will go on to great success. It will be number one, obviously, here in the UK for more weeks than I can understand, but also reached number one in Belgium and Rhodesia. Well, there you go. There's there's a connection between three countries I never thought I'd I'd see. Belgium, UK, Rhodesia, they all love this song. I mean, we get like five weeks of this. Yeah, it's, it's a much bigger song than I remember it being. No, it's not a bad song, but also why? Yeah, yeah I, I guess there was just no other competing songs being released against it that were overtaking it in terms of sales. But yeah, I, I honestly... Do not recall this song. I remember the song coming out. I remember the song being played. 
I don't remember it being this big of a hit though. Five weeks is nuts. And not only that, but it was actually released like four weeks before this. So it had been on the charts for a month already before it hit number one. And then it just, it just stayed there. I don't remember this because it is very much a reggae style. I mean, obviously with the people involved, especially UB40, that's the vibe they were going for more so than I think the original song. I just don't remember reggae being that big in 1994. I used to work a toy shop and I got out of university and I, I think I might have told the these sorts of stories on the podcast before. I've certainly told them on other podcasts anyway. But um the toy shop in question used to get like the music that was played in there was sent to you by head office. It was a CD of eleven tracks. So you would hear those eleven tracks over and over again, and they would only send you a new CD every three months. So I would hear those eleven tracks a lot. You'd hear them three, four times a day. And it was oftentimes stuff from High School Musical because it was a toy shop. There was stuff from The Wiggles. There was stuff from In the Night Garden, Teletubbies, uh, all that kind of you know good stuff. But there was always one 80s track on there. For whatever reason, I actually met some. I actually met the person from head office who did the uh, the CDs, and and she just like, yeah, I just think it's a fun little inclusion to put like an 80s banger in there. So for one period of time, it was Rick Astley, Never Gonna Give You Up. Oh, you got Rick rolled every hour. Got Rick rolled on the hour, basically every single hour throughout a day. But one of the uh, CDs we got sent had UB40's Red Red Wine on it, and I don't mind UB40's Red Red Wine. But fuck me sideways when you hear that song six times a day for three months straight. I never want to hear that song ever again. And you mentioned a UB40 just gave me these horrible flashbacks of stacking Ben 10 action figures with red, red wine rattling around my cranium. We've just had a Smith's Toys open here in Croydon, which is very exciting because we used to have a Toys R Us. And um, much like anyone that went into a Toys R Us in probably the decade leading up to their closure, it was never what you remembered it being. No, it was not. But going into a Smith's Toys, they get it. I I was a, I was a, I was a kid in a toy shop when I went in there. There was a lot <laughs> of stuff in there that I'm just like, well, this is not for me. But there's also stuff. They, they've found that balance. They've struck the balance between appealing to the kids and appealing to the kids. It's mm. like, cool, you've got your Fortnite toys, you've got all that kind of jazz. And then over here, we've got He-Man action figures. And we've got yeah, giant yeah. Lego sets. And we've got lots of Nerf guns, which I think is the kind of the joining material between the kids and the kids. But their soundtrack was very 80s, probably much more varied than what you had when you worked in a toy shop. But I appreciated the musical choices that they were giving when I was in there. Yeah, I, do you know what, like, it wasn't always, I mean, okay, it was always terrible because it was the same songs, but some of those, like, the, the High School Musical stuff, it was a remix album that had been done by Jason Nevins, so it's actually, like, quite a good remix album, they, they sound like good dance tracks, um, I just need, like, all they need to do was one CD a month, like, that's all I was after, that's all I was asking for, was just, like, a new CD to be sent every month, not every bloody quarter. There, there isn't actually a huge amount to say about this song, we've probably already said most of it, but we will check in on Baby Come Back over the next month. And uh, who knows, maybe I will unearth some new nuggets. Spoilers, I won't, but maybe I will. Only other bits of TV news is October 29th, ITV at the network premiere of The Running Man. In next Saturday's movie premiere, Arnold Schwarzenegger is The Running Man. I said the crowd is unarmed. It's showtime. This is all a lie. I was framed. On the run. <laughs> Look at that mother move. Is he beautiful? With one last chance. In person, the butcher of 
Granada's movie premiere, The Running Man, next Saturday at 9. I'll be back. I do like The Running Man. It is definitely one of my favourite kind of like lesser uh, Arnold movies. Also, of course, it's got Jesse the Body Ventura in it as Captain Freedom. And it's such a wild and out there kind of film. Also, wrestling connections other than Jesse Ventura is Professor Toru Tanaka as Professor Sub-Zero. I I love The Running Man. I really, really do. When we were at university and like quoting Arnie movies was like the big thing uh, sort of in that mid 2000s period. This was one of our go to's of like lines to say, here lies Sub-Zero, now just plain zero. What's wrong with him? He had to split. Um, All this sort of stuff. Like I I absolutely adore this movie. I'll be, Killian, I'll be back only in a rerun. There's, um, it's full of zingers. And, you know, Stephen D'Souza, I, I don't know how much of those zingers were Stephen D'Souza or whether or not Stephen D'Souza wrote a script and then pan- handed it off to someone else who was just like, and now add in all the zingers. But man, it's like almost every other line. Now, casting-wise, originally it wasn't always going to be Arnold. It was going to be Christopher Reeve. He was approached at one point. But this is a Richard Bachman film, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Stephen King, and the original Running Man, the original Ben Richards in the novel, from what I can remember... It's nothing like Arnold. They did turn this into a much more standard action film with some batshit stunt casting. I mean, we mentioned uh, Tori Tanaka, mentioned Jesse Ventura. Sven Ole Thornson is in there playing Sven. They really challenged him with that role. But also Mick Fleetwood as Mick and Dweezil Zapper. Yeah, Dweezil Zappa gets an appearance in there. It is, it's a bizarre little movie. Wonderfully bizarre. I, I, I really, really do like The Running Man. I know, you know, served as the inspiration for Smash TV. When we were approaching kind of like uh, the end of 2020 and we knew that suddenly it was going to get a bit more complicated and a bit more expensive to import stuff from the EU, I did go through a run of picking up various German and Italian Blu-ray releases of films where they'd kind of got a slightly better package than, say, Europe or, in some cases, America. And I did get a Stephen King double bill. I did get The Running Man and Maximum Overdrive, the German media book releases. Oh, they're good. And a couple of game releases just to go through because they've been featured in this show already. Way of the Warrior on the 3DO and, because it doesn't get mentioned very often, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story on the Atari Jaguar was released in this week. A moment of awe for the fact that an Atari Jaguar game was released. I know. And it makes it into the, our news headlines and everything. Albeit, without the three-player mode that was kind of integral to Dragon because they didn't have a multi-tap for the Atari Jaguar. Guys, Atari biffs it again. It's not even the last hurdle. They just fall at every hurdle. They may as well not have had hurdles because they're just not even attempting to jump over them. Mm. It may as well have just been treated as, I don't know, a run-through wooden gates course. Welcome to Games Master. A kind of gardener's question time with joysticks instead of juniper berries, graphics instead of gardenias, and me instead of a lot of dull old folk with green fingers. Are your parents uh, big watchers of gardening shows? No. I, I mean, I will say, they didn't watch like The Gardener's World, but Gardener's Question Time on Radio 4, that they did listen to, that and The Archers. So I'm kind of fairly familiar with Gardener's Question Time as a concept because it was on in the car when we were going places on a Sunday if we were going to do buying for the family business and whatnot. And so, yeah, you know, I kind of got these references. I kind of wish I hadn't, but but there we go. And I love how he just takes the sunflower the goblins are carefully tending to and chucks it into the fire. 
Yeah, it's it's really good like banter with the with the goblins and stuff. My parents absolutely friggin' love gardening and, and gardening shows and gardeners question time on the on Radio Four and things like that. Like and the archers, funny enough. Um, and like my brother is as well. Like my brother and his girlfriend are also very green fingered. They're very much the good life. Um, oh, we were at theirs at the weekend, and you know they've got their own. They've got big veg. Pretty much everything they eat is stuff that they have grown themselves. And they've even got like uh, neighbors like the Good Life that uh, don't uh, quite get on with their hippie lifestyle. Really? Yeah, it's quite funny, really. Because um, like they they've got a wonderfully manicured lawn, lovely, very manicured lawn, and it, it is a, like the guy takes a lot of pride in the uh, effort that he puts into making his garden look as neat and trim as possible. Whereas my brother's garden is a bit more overgrown because that's a bit more bee friendly, which is then much better for their plants and everything like that and the, the veg and stuff that they're growing. So they have like a, a few disagreements over that sort of thing. But um, yeah, so like the, everyone in my family is really grief figured apart from me who just like my, I haven't cut my grass for like four weeks. Now it's too long and I don't want to do it anymore. And I'll be out there for it's going to take me half an hour to do. And that's 30 minutes. It's too many. When I was a kid, I used to earn pocket money by mowing the lawn and I, I always kind of enjoyed it. It wasn't too bad. I am kind of amazed that my parents trusted a child with a petrol lawnmower. <laughs> oh, Christ, you had a petrol one. Yeah. I, I mean, we had a, you know, we were living in a fairly rural area. We had quite a big garden. You know, it wasn't that it was posh. It was just big because it was a, it was a detached house in the middle of nowhere. Land was cheap. And yeah, they trusted me with a petrol lawnmower, despite the fact that I was at that point didn't have enough strength to start the bloody thing because of the ripcord. Oh, you can come do mine if you fancy, because I fucking hate it. No, I'm cool. God damn it. Yeah, that's it. We're going to see each other for the first time in over a year. And it's like, oh, so good to see you. Can you do the law while you're here? Do you mind? <laughs> right, anyway, let's get on with our first challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? The first challenge I've prepared is on the second level of the Disney game Lion King on the Mega Drive. Players must compete to reach the halfway point icon in the fastest time, taking care to anticipate the host of pitfalls that pepper their progress. Needless to say, any player who bites the dust before they reach the halfway point will be instantly disqualified. I can't wait to be king level from the Lion King. I mean, granted, they're not complete dicks. They just give them the easy bit at the start of this that, that like, you know, eases you into all of the, the nonsense that comes later on in this level. But just seeing those graphics, hearing that music, oof, it just brought back, like, horrible, like, you will never get past this level. But you know what? I mean, like, I, I'm saying that, and I, I've ragged on the game quite a bit. It's a very good game, and it looks awesome. And this is the Mega Drive version, I think. That we're this is the Mega here. Drive version, yeah. In addition to the Mega Drive, obviously, because it's the 16-bit era, this came out on the Super Nintendo, also MS-DOS, Amiga, Game Gear, Master System, and Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, in the case of the Amiga, the Master System, and the Nintendo Entertainment System versions, not only did those only come out in Europe and PAL regions, but in the case of the Nintendo, this was the last game officially released for the platform in that region in addition to being the final licensed game worldwide. There you go. I mean, 94, you know, ending in 94 is not a bad stretch for the, uh, for the, I mean, that's, you know, nearly 10 years worth. Yeah, it, it's impressive. I mean, the only place where I think things really went further is like for Brazil. Yes. 
where they, they i mean some of the games that got ported both to the master system and the mega drive officially or otherwise are crazy you can find roms of them online and they are putting stuff on the mega drive that by all laws of programming shouldn't work but they really kind of do with that and they didn't even need a 32x for it who'd need a 32x luke really and it says something about how difficult and how long these levels are, where we're not racing to the end of the level, we're racing to the halfway point. Yeah, and, it's good, and they show the checkpoint from a different level as well, but it's just like, and you just need to reach the checkpoint, that's all you're after. If you get, if you bite the dust, you get DQ'd and you're out of there, and we'll actually, funnily enough, get to see a little bit of that. So, for tonight's first challenge, please welcome Lewis Sugiyama and Michael James. Okay, Lewis, obviously, apart from Games Master, what other things do you like to watch on TV? Uh, some Australian soap operas. Yeah, which ones are your favourites? Uh, Neighbours. Yeah, you watch uh, Home and Away? Mm, not that much. No? Uh, right, let's go to you now. Michael, what are some of your hobbies then? Uh, remote control car racing. Oh yeah, and uh, where about you live? Chichester. Chichester. So you play the remote control cars, but where about in Chichester? Yeah, we've got a field outside our house, so uh -huh. racing there. Play them there. At the moment it's being resurfaced, so we can't race. Uh -huh. That's progress, though, no, Michael. What about in the cathedral? Is the cathedral? Do you ever play them in there? Oh no, Vicar would kill me. Vicar would kill you? I'd like to see how you'd explain that to his boss, though. <laughs> Taking on the challenger Lewis and Michael, and Lewis, other than Games Master, likes to watch some Australian soap operas neighbours over home and away. I mean, I think Dominic had a follow-up question here, but there's this like real hard cut as he then goes into Michael's question as well. I've got to, I wonder if he asked about, are there any of the birds that you fancy? That would be my, if I was to hazard a guess at what Dominic Diamond asked as his follow-up question, that would be my guess. And I think we had it last week, perhaps with regards to the rollerblading, which he managed to just rescue something from, but it wasn't great material to work with. And here they're just like, well, Moving on. So he goes over to Michael, whose hobbies include remote control car racing. And Dom's like, all right, where do you live? Chichester. And Dom asks him where he races them. And Michael's like, oh, yeah, I race them in the field. But I can't at the moment because it's being resurfaced. And I love Dom's line here of like, well, that's the price of progress. Yeah, like, it's just like, oh, no, I'd never do it there because the, I'd never do it in the cathedral. The vicar would kill me. And Dom, playing up to the setting, goes, well, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see him explain that to his boss which is one where I laughed and I think the goblins laughed, but the audience was just like, don't get it. It was over their heads. It is funny as well, because when he said RC racing, I thought, uh, I didn't realize he meant like those sorts of remote control cars. My first thought was went to Skelectrics and he was just doing like slot car racing. No, no, he was definitely talking about the kind of the ones where you put eight AA batteries in it and it lasts five minutes. Yeah, like a, like a Game Gear on wheels. This is the first bloke to embark on a new kind of Disney adventure. By using a tilting the carpet with his hands type situation, he can fly straight through a scene from Aladdin in Disney's first trip down virtual reality lane. The challenge is that when you go and see this attraction, that you will think you're in the movie Aladdin. Cityscape and characters are generated using computers so powerful that every big computer in the world kneels before them and cries, you are indeed powerful. Why do you stop in the middle of the road like this? Oh, don't play that with me. This is a cool little news feature to kick us off with because, I mean, we are in a VR world. We had the Cybermax a few weeks ago, but this is the big boys getting involved now. This is Disney getting in, um, talking about Aladdin's magic carpet ride, which you put on this ginormous headset and then you can fly around Agrabah and stuff. And it is like fascinating here because this is in 19 tail end of 1994, but this won't open until 1998. Yeah, I mean, I think you did the same research I did on this one and found that this was um, part of the whole Disney Quest 
kind of experience thing, which included some stuff at like Epcot and, you know, in the main Disney parks. But the idea was they were going to open Disney branded virtual reality centers and adventure areas. And they did. And in fact, this Aladdin attraction that we see a preview of here was one of the first features to open and one of the last to close. It outlasted everything else. And essentially what happened was the Walt Disney Company and their Imagineers turned to the animators from Aladdin and said, if you guys make a 3D Agrabah with the same quality and hand-drawn animation and skill as you see in the movie, we will come up with the hardware to make it into a ride. And they did, and they did. Although it took them a bit longer than implied here. It really did. I watched a really fun video of Michael Eisner walking in going, hello, in the way that Michael Eisner does and then sort of like walks you through the ride and stuff. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. I'm here in the virtual reality studio where Disney Imagineers are creating a whole new world of storytelling. Tiny TV screens inside this headset actually allow you to step into the world of Aladdin on a magic carpet ride. It's called virtual because it's a world which only exists inside a computer. Reality, because unlike film or television, you see not just what's on the screen, but what's above, around, and behind you. And you control when you return to the real world. I wonder where the exit is. Oh, well, welcome to the wonderful world of Disney. And he shows off more of the ride um, than we get to see here. Like, actually get to see it going inside the Sultan's Palace and everything. It did look really impressive. And I've been to Disney as well a couple of times. I didn't, I never went to Disney Quest at Epcot, which is a shame as well, because I probably would have like, quite been into this. Defunctland have got a really, really good video on Disney Quest, which features some of the stuff here about Aladdin's magic carpet ride. Uh, which I would recommend everyone go and check out, A, because Defunctland do amazing videos. But uh, they talk about how Disney Quest was essentially, what people think it is anyway, is that Sega had partnered with DreamWorks to make Gamesworks, which were, uh, rather than an arcade being in a mall, it was a mall inside an arcade. And so Disney saw that and was like, fucking Jeffrey Katzenberg, I will make my own version. of, And that's what Disney Quest came out of. It's worth saying that this VR experience looks better than anything we've seen out of VR thus far. In fact, I would argue this almost looks better than the fake VR that we've seen in movies like Lawnmower Man. And it came at a price because each one, you had your headset, you had your electronic saddle, you had your steering mechanism and all that stuff. You also had three Onyx computers per saddle. Each of those custom-built towers had the power of roughly 2,000 Pentium computers. And what that meant was each seat, so each person experience, cost roughly $1.5 million. Bloody hell, man. And you talked about Donkey Kong Country a few weeks ago. They spent the same on each seat as Nintendo spent on the entire development cycle, minus marketing, for Donkey Kong Country. Yeah, they put a lot of bunts into this. And we just, you know, Hey, it lasted a while. It didn't close until 2015. So they got like, you know, a fair number of years out of it. Even though like by the time 2015 came around, everyone was like, eh, it looks a little bit tired, a little bit dated. That's, I still think it's cool that it ran for so long. And at the beginning, at least, Disney had four seats up and running at its Imagineering Labs at Disney World. So it wasn't Epcot, it was uh, Imagineering Labs at Disney World. Someone will correct me, probably Defunct Land. But <laughs> their hope was that the price would continue to drop. It's the same thing as we've just recently had uh, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic first flight and his whole goal to make space travel affordable. And I say affordable in bunny ears, but it's still more affordable than what SpaceX are planning. It's like 
£10,000 as opposed to £1.5 million or something. But it did. The price did drop as they kind of expanded it out. Disney Quest may be gone and the Aladdin ride may now be defunct, but the world they created for it still lives on and can still be found on some home media releases of Aladdin. The Aladdin Special Edition DVD includes an interactive feature where you are going through Agrabah and it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure. You get to a point and you have to choose left or right. I couldn't find anything confirming it, but having watched the footage here and then watched this video, there's versions of it on YouTube and obviously if you've got the DVD, it's on there. It's very much the same world and I would argue they've either just repurposed the footage or just done a kind of a, a defined render path with mm. a few different branching options. And so the world lives on and it still looks pretty damn good. Yeah, I think it looks really good. You know, it looks great for 94 and I think it holds up now. But we're going from the cutting, nape leading edge of virtual reality technology to the Pico. A new console will be released in the UK early next year. Plug special books into it and a copy of the page you're looking at appears on screen, which players then interact with using a light pen. The bakery smells. And who could be behind this blatantly unhip piece of educational plastic? I mean, this is a Tom Kalinske project through and through. He bloody loved the Pico. And like when he was at the tail end of Sega and he was dealing with the internal politics that were going on between Sega of Japan and Sega of America and the war over the 32X and the Saturn and the Mega CD and all this sort of stuff. And he was like, uh, I'm kind of getting done with this. His one shining light was this Pico. And just being like, oh, wow, this is really cool. This is good. This could actually do some good for people. This is some uh, edutainment they would, uh, you know, brand it as because it's educational, but it's also a game sort of thing. Basically, I and mean, this is what Tom Kalinske does now. He works for Leapfrog. So it kind of feels like, you know, this was almost like his introduction to that world and like into, you know, what he's doing now. And the Pico itself, it's kind of a mega drive. Like not, not you can't play Sonic on it, but the hardware underneath it is definitely a mega drive-ish set of components previously we've always said you were the sega household i was a nintendo household i'd forgotten about the pico because my younger siblings had a pico oh cool you know what it kind of was it was pretty good they freaking loved this and i actually haven't had a chance to talk to my sister yet about this because uh relatively close time frame between making notes and recording this episode but i want to see how much she remembers of it because watching this i was just suddenly thrown back to setting it up for them and then playing it and then me actually playing on it a bit when they'd gone to bed because the winnie the pooh one was a really really good interpretation of the disney hundred acre woods version and i remember this but i genuinely don't remember it being sega like, like, I remember the Pico, but I don't remember it being really pushed as being a Sega product over here. I remember it being pushed as being very much Disney tie-in because I remember them having a year at Pooh Corner. I remember them having the Lion King tie-in. I don't remember them having any of the Sega branded ones because there was a Sonic kind of book for it and a Tales book for it and a Music Maker book for it and stuff like that. And whilst there was the same graphic CPU and chip as the genesis the one thing it was missing was it was missing that yamaha sound chip for the fm based synthesis it was instead accompanied by an nec chip which was capable of speech and extra sound effects but it, it doesn't feel quite as polished or of its time as it did but yeah man it was it was great to see this and this wasn't really that much of a folly 
because Sega at least claims that they sold 3.4 million Pico consoles and over 11 million games for it. Yeah, I mean, I found an interview with Tom Kalinske that he did with GamesIndustry.biz uh, in 2015, and it's a really kind of fascinating one to look at. And you can feel this Tom Kalinske here as the same Tom Kalinske that uh, Blake J. Harris would have interviewed when he was writing up Console Wars, which is a guy who is like reflecting on his time at Sega and realizing what was the move that pushed him out the door. I kind of feel like it is this sort of educational thing because what he said was, we were doing a hundred million in business from the Pico and its software, but it had a lower gross margin on it than obviously entertainment software. And this was again during a time when Japan was making decisions for me. And they said to me, stop wasting your time on the Pico. It takes too much effort, too much money. You could do another Sonic title and do a lot more revenue, a lot more profitably, much easier. And it struck me. That's why Disney hasn't been very good at education or any of the other big entertainment companies like Sony. Because it's hard. It's really hard to make a profit off doing education well. It's pretty easy, relatively, to do entertainment well. I mean, definitely applying technology to education is hard. And I say that as someone that had over 15 years experience of seeing the attempts to marry technology and education together. There's a lot of people that try and fail because like the Pico was discontinued, or at least the original Pico was discontinued in 1998. If this had come five years later, I mean, one Sega would have been out of the hardware business anyway. But if it had come five years later and they'd actually leaned into it more on the education side, maybe tried to partner up with Sesame Street or someone that already had a foot in the door of schools and preschools, they could have found a market by working with education, by selling them for the home, but also selling them at a discount to education. They could have found a way to exploit that early school kind of era and then find a way into the homes from there. And that sounds very cynical and very cutthroat to exploit children as a way to make your way into people's homes. But realistically, it's what Microsoft have been doing for years. If you work in education, you spend nothing on Microsoft products. You spend a flat fee and you get Office, you get Windows, you get Server, you get this whole suite of Microsoft products. And they sell it as supporting education. But really what they're doing is they're making sure that by the time you get to the world of work, you only know how to use Windows, you only know how to use Office, you only know how to use their suite of products. It is a business move. I guess it makes sense in a way, really, doesn't it? First of all, I think it's very cutthroat. And to be honest, mm. the fact that it meant that we could get so much software for so little, we capitalized on that in education. And I think Sega could have done with being a bit more, with thinking a bit more that way. And I genuinely think Sega of Japan made a massive cock-up there. We've already spent a lot of time recently talking about Sega cock-ups, and I think that was another one. To look at, like, you know, you've given the figures there of how many units that they sold in America. That's a really good number, to be honest. Like, Tom Kalinske there saying, we did $100 million in business. But, like, Sega's, like, whole deal is just like, eh, it's too expensive. It's too hard to make. We're not making enough profits on it, therefore we don't really want to do it anymore. This week sees the latest addition to the Games Master Network, live on air chat. You can see it happening by turning to Teletext, page 476. That's within the digitizer section on channel four. Or if you've got a PC and a modem, you can join in. Set your modem to eight bits, no parity and one stop bit. Dial 081-539-6763. Follow the directions to the Games Master on air chat and type away. on teletext is limited so if your comments don't make it on the screen straight away be patient and also uh, try to be funny now this is wicked 
I mean, essentially, what this next bit is is a text version of this podcast. But it is like it's teletext chat on uh, on the digitizer section of teletext where you can interact with other pay- other people who are watching the show. It's like our Discord, really, watching the shows together. This is this is kind of rad. Yeah. So I think the idea is is that you log on to the Games Master Network using your modem and the very specific modem instructions given by Mister Diamond, and then what you are typing into that chat room function will then be mirrored or selected and mirrored onto the teletext, almost like subtitles. And what they show here is very much a mock-up. It does not look this good in reality. Teletext never really looked this good in reality. Even subtitles now don't look this bloody good on most cases. What I found fascinating here with them showing the on-air chat around the challenge appearing on screen were the names. Did you identify them all? I did not, no. Because we have Johnny. Johnny Finch. Jane. Jane Hewland. And Richard who I pegged down as Richard Wilcox. So I love that they were having a little bit of an in-joke, and I think it's like either Richard or Johnny on this just goes, oh, this set looks nice, which I thought yeah. was <laughs> hilarious. What challenge are they playing? I think it's Dragon. I'm glad he told that, because as we said, when we covered Dragon, the video quality means it was bloody difficult what was to, to tell what was going on at the best of times. But I like Dominic at the end of there just being like, if you are going to do it, though, do try to be funny. I haven't got time for you to be crap at this. Right, we're in a Lion King challenge situation. Dave Perry is helping me out. Dave, the nation is yours. Tell them about the tricky parts in this challenge. Well, there are two bits to look out for in this challenge. One is initially they'll go up a tree and they have to roar at the various monkeys to flip them around so that they get thrown in the right direction. Then after that, they will land on, a, on an emu. And the thing to avoid is the stumps coming out of the trees. It's very tricky. Right, I'm almost breathless just there listening to that one there. But let's get back to this challenge and handsome Dave Perry is in the booth with his bandana and his vest taking us through the the pitfalls and challenges of this, uh, which are fucking numerous. Yeah, he says there were two tricky parts, which I think is an understatement, but one is climbing the tree and roaring at the monkeys to get them to go into the right order. Now, that is very much a memory thing because it's like you have to remember which order the monkeys go in and it's something you would have learned in the green room during practice. The other part is landing on and riding the emu, which is to a degree memory, but also timing. Uh, Timing is important because if you miss time a jump, you're going to hit an obstacle, insta-death, game over. It's a one-life challenge. And Lewis is up first. We're reminded it's fastest to the halfway point. And he avoids the water. He roars at the monkeys. The path is correct. And off he goes. And it is a fun section to watch your little lion being barreled around by these monkeys hanging from the screen. And oh, it looks so much fun. I know it's frustrating, Luke. I know this bit drove you mad, but it looks fun. And it really captures the mood of that part of the movie. The I just can't wait to be king. That's exactly it. And the music sounds amazing for it as well. Like the thing I absolutely love about this level is that it's it looks like the movie. This literally looks like you are playing through this song in video game form. And it is really, really like it's uh, the, the hard bits are like it's on the, the giraffe heads because some of the jumps are a bit unresponsive at times. The swinging on the hippo tails are the really tricky bits. Um, and then some of the emu stuff later where they don't actually give you the directions that you've got to go. But like, dude, it's such a it's well designed. It, well, I mean, it's designed to be nailed. But it's so well put together and like just looks gorgeous. And in fairness, Lewis on this run makes it look easy right up until he biffs the jump because he does the jump right, he does the duck right, and then it's the double jump and he gets one, but he doesn't get two. Yeah, he forgets that second one. And boom, he falls off the emu. And you know what that means, Luke? Death and disqualification. Yeah. And that was 53 seconds as well. So it wasn't like this isn't a short challenge. 
this is a, a pretty lengthy in terms of games master it is fairly lengthy but also a lot of that is automated like you spend more time going through the monkey mobile if you will yeah than you do actually setting it up because all you need to do is roll at two monkeys maybe three that's it it's only two and then you're watching the animation loop that that's it really but michael sits down on the hot rock and now it's not even a matter of beating a time it's just a matter of getting there so he can take his time Although I imagine the production crew would prefer if he hovered it along a bit. Yeah, and he does take his time on some of this because he doesn't. I don't, he's not as good as Lewis, uh, as particularly on the monkey bit, anyway. And he also he misses the emu. Like he do, he doesn't land on the emu. Lewis landed on the emu and made it look like a pro. He didn't stick the landing. Michael did, but he jumps, he ducks, he jumps, he double jumps, and he makes it. And, and like they say, he was slower than Lewis was. As well, he was like a couple of seconds slower than him. But it, it doesn't matter. All he had to do was finish. And I can imagine that when he sat down on that rock to play, like this wave of calm washed over him because it's like, the pressure's off. All I've got to do is finish it now. It doesn't matter what time I get. Now, Lewis, you were going so well. I reckon you probably would have been actually quicker than Michael, but then it all went wrong. Tell us what happened. I think I timed the jump too late or early. I know. It was, I just hit, the, hit one of the branches and then it fell down. And that was it? Yeah. Never mind. Um, Michael, now were you ner- a bit more nervous perhaps after seeing what happened to, to Lewis? A little bit, and then I thought I might as well time it a bit better than him. That would generally seem to be a good idea, wouldn't it? After <laughs> in the light of Lewis, I suppose. Savage. I love that final line. Really made me laugh because, like, Dominic really chuckles that as well, which is just like, well, I saw what he did and thought I'll just do it better. My solution was not to suck. It's an amazing answer to that question. I really, really like that. And like as a challenge, it's really good at showing off the game and like how beautiful the game is and how lovely like all the animation and stuff is. But because like you say, um, the majority of the challenge is just being thrown around by the monkeys where you don't actually have to do anything. You just you roll at the two monkeys, you jump in, they do the rest for you and they just ping pong you around. So a lot of the challenge is kind of just waiting for animations. So it's not the most dynamic challenge in terms of actual game playing. But it makes the game look really good. I think particularly in season three, particularly like that final episode, through no fault of anyone on the production crew, the fact that they had to sell Rise of the Robots and you had a challenge that not only was shit, but it made the game look shit and the game was shit. To have this here, which while not the most exciting challenge in the world, it at least makes you want to play the game. Same as Donkey Kong Country last week. It's a good moment. The exclusives and the kind of exciting games they're getting it's definitely helping the overall quality of the episode. And I think that we mentioned it with Donkey Kong last week. I don't think it did the same thing for Sonic and Knuckles. Like that, that, at the end of that, it didn't make me want to go and boost up Sonic and Knuckles. But this did make me want to go and boost up Lion King. I think the problem is, and you look at it in retrospect, and it's difficult to argue, Sonic 1, Sonic 2, Sonic 3, Sonic and Knuckles, they're basically the same game. And Sonic and Knuckles, with the benefit of hindsight, really does feel like the second half of a game. Yeah. First up, if you like NAF game shows, you need no longer watch BBC One. You can play Twisted instead. Twisted on 3DO is um, extremely strange. It's kind of like a cross between Monty Python and The Price is Right. A game show host leads you through a series of completely bizarre sub-games, none of which make any sense, so there's no point describing them. There's one really annoying part in Twisted, and that's when you get stuck on the Wheel of Torture. You have to, to get out of this, you have to line up three three beads in a row and only then will you be able to carry on. I got stuck on there for absolutely hours and all my mates were laughing at me. Among the 
sub games available is, for instance, the uh, scrambled TV picture, which you have to put together yourself, or zapping the TV commercials, where you get a series of nine televisions and you've got to kill the ones with adverts on while retaining them on the movie. There's all sorts of games like this, puzzle games, really, but it's great fun and it certainly have you laughing. This is one of those like interactive game show games. We get one later on in like our, I don't think we'll ever get it in our timeline, but do you remember um, Chef's Love Shack on the uh, on the PlayStation? Yeah. It's supposed to be the sort of like wild and, and wacky game and stuff. Like, you know, Frank's like, it's Monty Python mixed with The Price is Right. It's too bizarre to explain. 81% for this. That's a really, really good score. It is, and it is a lot of fun. In fact, I look at something like Twisted with its host, Twink Fisdale. What a great name. And you've got a whole bunch of different, like, kind of, you you are playing as personas. So there's, like, Wormington, who's a used car salesman, Madame Elaine, a late-night fortune teller, uh, Johnny Pow, a stereotyped Asian-American, and so on and so forth. This feels like a predecessor to Jackbox games and that mm, kind yes. of non-sequitur, mini-games, fun roundtable and I'd argue why this didn't take off as much is because it relied on you all being around the same console, having enough controllers or passing the controllers. Whereas when we get to Jackbox games and that era of social gaming, all you need is a mobile phone. You don't even need to be in the same place, particularly over the past year. Twitch streaming Jackbox with lots of people playing from different locations. It took off. These also don't really work as solo player games as well. So you are buying them for that party game atmosphere, which means a lot of times it's, I don't think they have that sort of mass market appeal in the end then. Oh, certainly not to the gamers anyway, because it's just like, well, why do I need to buy this? I'm only ever going to play it once. I've not actually played Twisted. It's on my short list of games to play either when I get a 3DO or when I just give up and start emulating the 3DO. Uh, because it definitely was a game showing the, the 3DO can do something a bit special because you could do this on the Mega CD. But it would have looked shit. Yeah, it would have done. The video compression technology of the 3DO definitely comes out to play here and makes the game look a lot better. There isn't a huge amount to say about the game that we haven't said already. And most of that is because a lot of it's visual. So, you know, obviously, if you've watched the episode in preparation to listening to this podcast, you've seen how kind of cool and zany it looks. And if not, you know, go and check out the episode, check out a Let's Play. I do look forward to giving it a bit of a shot down the line. Yeah, I mean, according to Adrian, the uh, the wheel of torture bit is a bit rubbish. But like, that's pretty much the only negative anyone really has to say about the game. Now, he says the wheel of torture was a bit rubbish, but that was because he sucked at it. And I imagine that if you are playing this around a mate's house, it's a Saturday night, you got the beers in, and one of you keeps f***ing up this game, it would be hilarious for a long time. And I suspect Adrian's main saltiness here is, as he says... He was getting a lot of shtick from his mates. Yeah, it's always part of the fun, as long as it's not you the one who's getting the stick. Next up, Dynamite Heady. He's got a head and he's uh, dynamite. It's very colourful, it's very bright, and it's got some of the weirdest bosses you are ever going to see. It's got a huge, inflatable, giant pink sausage dog. Excellent. On the surface, Dynamite Heady is a straight platform game, but it doesn't take long to realise that there's a lot more going on in it. For a start, the head is the weapon, which is very strange, but there's also some very strange power-ups too, like you can turn your head into a bomb. Dynamite Heady is the second game from Treasure, the people who brought you Gunstar Heroes last year in the Mega Drive. 
and it's of equivalent quality. Fantastic looking game, amazing graphics, good slick gameplay, an excellent platform game and worthy of a place in anyone's collection. Up next, man, this is a great game. From the people that brought you Gunstar Heroes, a real, I mean, I can't say it's an unsung hero of the uh, the Mega Drive, because I actually think Gunstar Heroes is a real unsung hero, because I think Dynamite Heady got quite a lot of press when it came out, and it was way more publicized than Gunstar Heroes ever was. But this is a quality, quality Mega Drive game. Uh, 89% he gets here for Dynamite Heady. And, you know, Tim talking about how, like, there's more going on here than most platform games. Uh, Frank putting over the publisher, putting over Treasure and stuff, and said it's the same quality as Gunstar Heroes. An excellent platforming game, and there aren't many of those knocking around at the moment. 89% for Dynamite Heady. And we mentioned earlier a bit about Brazil and their love of the 8-bit. There was a Game Gear port of this game, which in itself served as a basis for a Master System version of Dynamite Heady that was exclusively released in Brazil, but which you can find ROMs of now, and once again shows that those Brazilian programmers were fierce mm-hmm. in their ability to kind of like get blood from a relative stone. But, oh, treasure. They, they are a treasure. They produce some amazing games. Yeah, I mean, they had three belters on the Mega Drive because they've also got Alien Soldier coming up in our timeline. Um, yeah, absolutely wicked stuff. And I, I have a lot of fun with Dynamite Heady. I played it a lot when I was at university. And you can still play it today via the Sega Genesis Classics Collection, or Sega Mega Drive Classics for us over here, which is still available and playable on the Xbox, PS4, slash PS5, the Nintendo Switch, Windows, Mac, and Linux. But Luke, guess what? What's that? There was a 32X conversion planned. <sighs> well, I don't know for a fact that didn't fucking come out. Nope, it did not. Yeesh. Finally, after Super Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat 2, it's Samurai Showdown Just 2. <laughs> The thing that surprised me most about Samurai Showdown was how different it was from other beat-em-ups. Here you've actually got weapons you can use and other sort of accompaniments, like uh, one character has his dog who he can sort of set on another character. Samurai Showdown first turned up on the Neo Geo about a year ago and at the time it was one of the best beat-em-ups available. The Super Nintendo conversion is very accurate. Uh, the sprites are a little small, but it plays in exactly the same way and you have all the same special moves. The SNES version is 32 meg compared with the Neo Geo's 130 plus meg. Um, obviously, something's got to go and most of it has. The intro line here to the review of Samurai Showdown made me laugh when he's just like, is it just poo? It's got a double whammy of humour because two and poo rhymes. Mm-hmm. Super Street Fighter 2, Mortal Kombat 2, but also in scatological humour, a number two is also a poo. There's so many layers, much like a poo. It's also just funny to say the word poo on a TV show when describing a game. Poo. It's still <laughs> funny on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Frank here is very praising of it. It's one of the best beat-em-up games on the Neo Geo. The SNES conversion, although it's a bit smaller, is still good. Um, but the problem is, I think it's like what Adrian says here, is that it's uh, most of it's gone in this conversion 79% for Samurai Showdown under the SNES like I think it's very much a case of Super Street Fighter 2 is just around the corner just get that instead the 16-bit versions of this they struggled the Mega Drive and the Sega CD version they were missing a character as well as his stage both of them lacked the camera zoom which was a big part of Samurai Showdown which is the closer you got the more the camera zoomed in when you move the characters apart it zoomed out Uh, the SNES version whilst it had all the characters also missed the zoom they just left it zoomed out and that's why those characters look quite small 
Whilst it had all the stages from the arcade versions and the arcade intro sequence, it didn't have any blood. It was replaced by sweat. We were back into the Mortal Kombat mode of thinking and it was missing some of the moves. Conversely, the Game Boy version did have all the characters, all the stages and most of the special moves and included all of the music, albeit scaled down. There was a period of time when the Game Boy was actually getting some fairly good fighting ports. When I got a Game Boy Pocket, so that would be a fair few years later, I think I was into my A-levels at that point and I got a red Game Boy Pocket. I picked up Street Fighter 2 for the Game Boy and I was amazed at how well a two-button port of Street Fighter 2 handled. Mm. That actually made me fall in love with Street Fighter 2 again. I'd kind of fallen out with it and been lured by the uh, 3D fighters of Tekken and such. And then I got to play Street Fighter 2 on the Game Boy and I'm like, oh yeah, it is actually really good and this holds up pretty well. That's cool. I actually haven't played the Street Fighter 2 ports. I've played the Mortal Kombat ports uh, over on the Game Boy, which, uh, you know, have varying levels of quality. I will check out the Samurai Showdown one, though, because that sounds really nice. I haven't checked it out yet, but one thing I will say is that the 3DO version includes the camera zoom, all the characters, all of the special moves and combos, and the fatality moves. So much like Super Street Fighter 2, 3DO is kind of the low-key daddy. It is indeed, although as we did discover, uh, Way of the Warrior outsold it, and they were quite upset about that. I think their upset is entirely justifiable because Samurai Showdown is a way, way better conversion, or indeed game, than Way of the Warrior. I mean, I know we're a few weeks removed from that, but the fact that that outsold both Samurai Showdown and Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo is mind-blowing. People were on the full motion video digitized graphics high because they were like, but it makes it more realistic. And it's like, yeah, but it also means it's more restricted. So Zach says you're working on a robotic soldier. You can't copy somebody's soul like it's a videotape. We've got to stop him. He's only been in virtual reality. Are you saying Jessica's his target? it stars that bloke, these birds and this boat. It's rather inexplicably a hit on American TV and it's also the latest game being developed on the CDI Thunder in Paradise. Okay kid, you have linked the Thunder's weapon. Show us your stuff. Thunder in Paradise is produced by the makers of Baywatch. Experts in the dumb bloke, fit bird, beach bikini action drama. Stretching credibility to its limits, Hulk Hogan, opting for the dead squirrel on upper lip look, plays the inventor of Thunder, a 45-foot speedboat with lots of spanky hardware. We're short on time. We'll go that way. You go this way. Find the major. You got one shot, so make a count. Move! Playing as Zack, your mission is to rescue kid sister Allison, who's run into a spot of bother with your standard virtual reality robot morphing supervillain. Along the way, you've got a lethal enforcer-style shootout in a warehouse. Believe it or not, this is another shootout on the beach. We've got long-range company. Get those missiles fired up. Fast. And way more shooting action on water. Thunder in Paradise, the game, is released early next year. What are you shooting at, man? The targets. Hit the targets. Unfortunately, so is the TV show. You lost. Big time. Good news is, you can always try it again. That's right. There's always another day. No, it's that Hulk Hogan show. Oh no, it's a CDI game of it. Oh no. Yeah, it's not just an interactive movie. It's actually an interactive movie that if you watched Thunder in Paradise, you will already know the plot for because there was a two-parter for Thunder in Paradise called The Major with M.A.J.O.R and The Minor, which whilst they were filming, they also filmed 
the footage for the game. So while they were filming these, this two-part episode, which took like 10 to 12 days, which is quite long for that kind of show, they had a linear script, which is what would be used to produce the actual episode. And then they had a 134-page CDI script, Eesh. which is what would be used for this two-parter. I am tempted to go back and play this purely because, oh man, it looks like an absolute shit show. And Thunder in Paradise from the producers of Baywatch was an absolute shit show. But my favourite little bit of nugget of information is the title of this. This this episode and this Thunder in Paradise interactive CD-ROM is the major and the minor, which, in a reference that would have gone down well with the kids, is a parody of the 1942 American comedy film starring Ginger Rogers and Ray Milland called The Major and the Minor. Oh, you've got to know your audience, haven't you? And that explains why Thunder in Paradise did not do the business. But it did give a lot of war compass for Hulk's friends from WCW and WWF. Yeah, I mean, if you look down the cast list of it, it's like, Jim the Anvil Nightheart's on the show. Sting's on the show. Jimmy Hart's in most episodes as the character Jimmy. Like, it is... I mean, if you watch a lot of Hogan movies anyway, there is always, like, Brian Knobs is about to show up at some points. Dominic Simons here says that the game is released next year, as is the TV show. But, like, it, there wasn't a lot of episodes. There's only 22 episodes of Thunder in Paradise. Only, really ran, only ran for one season. And it is still on the air in America at this point. So I had to look to see what episode aired the same week as this episode of Games Master. It was episode 19 called Blast Off. A terrorist threatens to blow up a spaceship unless he receives a huge ransom. Spence and Brew try to stop him. Because when you think of space, space, you <laughs> yeah. think of a speedboat. And unsurprisingly, Jimmy Hart's in the episode. Are we going to do an episode of Thunder in Paradise? Are we going to do an under consultation extra, which is a vote off between the shittest of mid 90s genre fiction? Because the thing is, it's a futuristic boat. It is technically genre fiction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, we, we did say that we did all we would do it as an episode of Under Consolation and we'd all just watch it together if we could ever find a way for us all to stream it from the same place. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Hopefully, by the time you hear this, we'll have worked that bit out. <laughs> yeah. Because I would love to sit with you for an hour, Luke, and rip the piss out of this show. It oh, deserves man, which, it. Which I cannot imagine would be difficult to do. But one important note, and probably the best thing about this little game guide, did you hear the music? No, I don't remember. I did hear the music. Oh, it was Joe Satriani surfing the alien, but chopped up really badly, possibly to <laughs> avoid any copyright claims. But I'm just listening to it going, that sounds like Joe Satriani surfing the alien or a Jimmy Hart knockoff. And I shazammed it on the episode. And it took three or four attempts to find a consistent enough bit of music for it to work. But it did confirm it's Joe Satriani surfing the alien, arguably the coolest thing about that feature. Oh, no, for me, the coolest thing about that feature is all of Hogan's acting. What are you doing, brother? Shoot the ones over there, dude. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we've definitely got to do this because your Hulk impression is absolutely perfect. Thank you, man. But that is enough news. That's enough Lion King. That's enough reviews. That's enough Hulk Hogan. It's time for a celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? The next challenge, see the final of my footy fest. So I've come up with something rather special. FIFA International on the 3DO. A game that's brought some sensational soccer battles. There are a number of camera angles available on the game. But I've chosen one that should allow our player to get a good view of the field without becoming too overwhelmed. 
So let's get those shin pads on and get ready for kickoff. I write down episode titles ahead of time. I've got a, I've got a spreadsheet, um, a Google sheet that's got every single episode title because it's just easier for me when I'm loading the episode into Acast or onto Patreon to go in there, control C, control V, aha. And or Command C, I'm, on a, I'm a Mac user, I'm a filthy Mac user, and, and, and copy and paste it into a custom patron. It's just easier that way. So I had this just written down, you know, the episode. And it, I always thought when looking ahead at season four, it's very weird that the first two rounds of this FIFA tournament are on FIFA 95. And then the final challenge is on FIFA International Soccer, which just seems like a bit of a step backwards. What an idiot I am. Of course, it is FIFA International Soccer, but it's the 3DO version. It is an actual step up and a step forward. I don't know why I didn't put that together ahead of time. I mean, it is indeed a massive step forward. And yes, Luke, you are indeed an idiot. Mm -hmm. It was because I watched this episode. I put a tweet out about this fairly recently, actually. Um, uh, When I was, I had to take my car in for its MOT. And so I took my laptop into this little cafe and got myself a smoothie and a sandwich. And uh, I was going to make take notes realizing i forgot my headphones so i actually watched the episode in silence and i was actually just making notes on the images i was seeing in front of me and when the internet when the the logo came up and it was the 3do version there was this like an audible from me oh yeah right of course yeah that makes a lot of sense they're really on the 3do at the moment aren't they Yeah, yeah yeah this is a really good way to end off this tournament And not only are they really on the 3DO, but also we've heard there is some excitement about this FIFA game. Dom bigs it up in his own intro. And and time-wise, they give this twice the time that the qualifying rounds had. This is very much actually a shout back to the end of Season 3, where rather than cut the news, reviews or features, they just go, no, we're just going to have two challenges. So that's another reason this episode is unusual, but one or two challenges will become more common the closer we get to the end of Games Master, But I think this game still looks a lot of fun and I think it still looks pretty good, even though we are right at the beginning of proper 3D football games. And I say proper 3D, despite the fact that the sprites are still very much sprites and 2D. This is a very impressive game to look at because we get it reviewed in a few episodes time. And I think Frank O'Connor makes the point of like, it feels like you are watching a football game, like a real life football game with the way that the camera moves. But from watching this challenge, it feels like the camera moves are really good when you're in the middle of the pitch. But when you get down to goal ends, it feels like it's still too very far away and no one really quite knows what's happening down in the goal mouth. Yeah, it is worth saying that, you know, this is an exciting game to see. I was very excited to see it, particularly because, you know, 3DO love. It's not a classic from a game playing point of view. I don't think it makes the game look bad. But man, I wish the players had had more time on it. I mean, it's definitely a case of all three rounds of this competition were filmed in the same day because they're all wearing the same clothes. Mm -hmm. But it is pretty, it is really cool to see. And Games Master does make this point in his intro of like, well, there are multiple camera angles. I've restricted it to a few just so our players don't get too confused. Because I imagine if you'd had it flipping between all seven, these guys wouldn't have stood a sodding chance. It's, it's, this looks next, like, I mean, yeah, it is. This looks like next gen stuff. Like when you see this on screen, because this game looks wicked, when you see this on screen and you compare it to the FIFA 95 game that we've had for the previous two weeks, it's night and day. So you take yourself back to 1994, where you haven't got all of this, your years of experience of playing 3D football football games and given handed this controller 
and to be put into this uh, Bucky O'Hare's 3D environment, I'd imagine, yeah, it would be like really weird to play and like really hard to get your head round. So this is our fourth 3DO challenge. Yeah, in seven episodes. Honestly, either they were legitimately high on the prospect of the 3DO or Trip Hawkins was making it rain in the Games Master offices. This is the first one which has really made me go, oh, hello. Yeah. This feels next gen, yeah. not just 16-bit, plus a bit extra completely agree with you i kind of i had it a little bit with road rash but i didn't have that with nova storm and way of the warrior but this and road rash really felt like like okay yeah i see what you're going for here i think with road rash it was while a bit more up and down and it looked a bit better and it sounded a bit better it was essentially the same perspective the same angle the same game that's fair yeah this was a case of it's not just a isometric view of the pitch. We're, we're padding and swooping and we're doing all kinds of stuff. To leap ahead slightly, when we get to half time and the players start to run off the pitch, the camera actually does kind of a dive and a follows them into the dugout a bit. Now, obviously, nowadays, you would actually get a proper, like it would probably follow them into the locker room if you gave it half a chance because they'd have rendered it all. Back then, that still felt pretty special. And I got a genuine kick out of seeing this game here. And much like the FIFA tournament in itself, I wish the week before the FIFA tournament started, you'd have had a piece to come from Dom going next week. We've got a start of this year's FIFA tournament, which will see the final played on FIFA for the 3DO, the next gen football game. You know, big that up, build up to it. Because as it was, and as you said via your own confusion, just on paper, we didn't know what we were building up to. I thought I was just building it back to the first bloody FIFA game. But yeah, this is, if you've watched this challenge and you weren't like that impressed with how it looks, I think you've just got to like, man, this is 1994. You know, this is pre-PlayStation. This is pre-Saturn. FIFA games won't look this good on the PlayStation for a while yet. Our two finalists are sailing up the tunnel, about to step onto the Hallowed Games Master Turf. Please welcome Casey Keller and Andy Townsend. Now, I know you're both a pre-match nerve, so we'll keep this brief. Casey, what are your tactics for the final? Score and win. All right, I like that. Andy, how about yours? How will you counter this score and win tactic of Casey's? Um, well, hopefully I'll score myself, but uh, we'll see. This game looks uh, a bit different, so yeah. uh, keep your fingers crossed. But we have got our finalist. It is Casey Keller and Andy Townsend, and Casey has got the smart tactic of scoring. I mean, it's a valid tactic, Luke. It's certainly one that I can embrace, and one I actually failed at when I was playing FIFA 21 yesterday before the, uh, the final match. Eesh. Andy's like, he's hopeful he'll score. But this game does look a bit different. There is a slight look of fear in his eyes. That's what I got. Andy has got trepidation about picking this up because, you know, bearing in mind when we had him on the show last week, he was saying like, oh, you know, I've played my son's computer for about 10 minutes, but I haven't played anything like this before. Like, so he's now gone from FIFA 95 on the Mega Drive, this very simple isometric game to this? I, I There's a lot of just like, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's like going to a caveman, giving him a flint axe for like a couple of days and then replacing it with going here's the nuclear briefcase here's the football yeah. and don't be surprised when mr ugg just blows himself up all right best of luck to both of you if you want to see who wins in this grand final of finals join us after the break
makes hunger extinct. Barbecue sauce, grass, yuck. Do you worry about tough stains? Of course not. You add new Vanish Inwash to your detergent to remove the stains some detergents alone leave behind. Spotless. Put Vanish Power in your wash. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This Sunday, the book the world is talking about. Prince Charles's true feelings for Camilla Parker Bowles in the only paper authorized to print the story, The Sunday Times. We're getting ready for Gamesmasters football final. We have Andy Townsend and Casey Keller. With me in the commentary box is Simon Byron from the one. Simon, um, we're playing this on the 3DO. Now, slightly different than playing it on the, the Mega Drive or the Super Nintendo. What do the players have to watch out for here? Right, it's essentially the same game underneath, but of course it looks different. It's, it's beautiful. Um, the players have to watch out for becoming disorientated through the spinning camera view. So it's worthwhile just once you've passed the ball, stopping, looking to see where, where your support is, yeah. and then playing on like that. Simon Barrett, again, is in the booth for the commentary. It's all filmed at the same time. Um, he's got an interesting point here where he effectively says, this is the same game. Underneath all of this, it's the same FIFA game that you know and love. It just looks a bit different. So the real tactic here is just don't get disorientated. I mean, he's not far wrong because the Mega Drive obviously designed with a three-button pad in mind and the 3DO as standard has three face buttons in addition to its D-pad. So if you are familiar with the controls of the Mega Drive version, you should be able to walk your way across to the 3DO controls fairly easily, I'd imagine. I've not played the the 3DO version, but it's a guess I'm going to go with. But absolutely, the camera angles are going to be the difference maker. And the other difference maker is it is a bigger and bolder challenge and that is reflected by the fact that there are two minutes on the clock for the first half, not 45 seconds, two minutes. Yeah. And that definitely impacts the end score. I, I would say so as well. Yeah. Like they are giving this final time, which they obviously like factored in to do so. They, you know, they are spoilers, everyone. You've probably seen it from the episode title. This is our last challenge. 
This is not a three challenge episode. This is the first time where we've only ever had two challenges and they've dedicated the time to this final challenge. I, I feel like we're being very serious about this, but that is only because for a change, Simon Barrett of The One is also being serious in this. This isn't like Dominic Diamond being like, oh, tell me, like, let's make a joke about Peter Beersley's dress style, or oh, I don't know, who should we take a knock at this week? Or, let's make a joke about John Fashion or something. Simon Barrett gives genuine advice on how to play this game. And they take it very, very seriously, which is very, it's not just the camera angles that are disorientating on this. The change in tone of Dominic Diamond and Simon Barrett in the comic booth is also disorientating for series four. And as this first half gets underway, even now, like the camera angles we see in this first kind of like opening volley, they're pedestrian as hell today. Today, they'd almost feel underwhelming, but seeing them in the context of 94, 95, kind of unusual. It shows in Casey and Andy, they're both taken slightly aback. And whilst Casey does get the first run on goal, it's when Andy returns the favour with his own run, he manages to take first blood and there's still a minute and a a half left of the first half. And that kind of indicates that this is not going to be a one-nil kind of game. This is going to be a high scorer. It's not going to be a classic, not in the traditional back and forth sense. It's going to be a bit more of a massacre, I'm afraid. Yeah, I think so as well. But the crowd are into it. Which is cool as well, because it's really nice to see. And it's the the only problem, the only negative I can say about this game and this challenge is that the camera angle works so well in the center of the pitch and it's sort of like that, you know, the, the third eye the side of it. But when it gets to goal mouth stuff and it doesn't quite pan all the way across, because it's not like it's essentially is panning rather than sort of like going with. So when Andy scores for a second time, Dominic and Simon don't see it. They only know he scores because the goal line, because the scoreline changes. Yeah, essentially the second goal is a fumble. The keeper yeah. fumbles it and it goes behind the keeper. I think it's because we're still in 2D graphics on a 3D plane. If these That's were exactly really 3D it. rendered characters, it would be much easier to identify, uh, regardless of the camera position, because I think just the ball would behave slightly differently. But going into the end of the first half, it is 2-0. And that's where we get that camera zoom as the players exit the pitch. And it's just absolutely lovely to see at the time. It's so nice to see someone take advantage of this new technology in what could have easily just been a licensed update bit of shovelware. Yeah, I mean, you can tell this is an EA console and EA's flagship game on that console. And they, you know, they put a lot of like a lot of money and a lot of effort into making this look the bee's knees. Speaking of things being the bee's knees, Andy's third goal is awesome. Andy's third goal, because he hoofs it up the pitch, and then he gets it onto... He's playing as the Republic of Ireland. We didn't actually say he's the Republic of Ireland, Casey is USA. That makes a lot of sense. He hoofs it up the pitch, and then gets this great run on it, beats his man, and boots it into the back of the net. It is stunning stuff, and it's really, really good. For someone that was so trepidatious about it, Andy is the star player here, and fairly soon after that, with a minute still left on the clock, he makes it 4-0. That goal was even better because it was the exact same movement, but, and I'm sure it wasn't on purpose, does this little like cheeky chip and it just floats over the keeper and just gently bounces into the goal. If he did that on purpose, it would have been like, it's goal of the tournament. I'm pretty sure he did it by accident. It's still goal of the tournament for me. Casey finally gets onto the scoreboard, but it's only by an own goal. It's literally kind of like a consolation hand job in a football match. It's just like kind of, it it doesn't really mean anything. And it's fairly obvious he's not going to score another three that way. Not with 30 seconds left on the clock. And especially not with 10 seconds left when Andy scores again and makes it 5-1. And despite a desperate last run on goal by Casey, the whistle blows 
just before the ball crosses the line. He could have made it 5-2, but no, the score remains at 5-1. Andy wins. Casey loses. The game looks great. Andy was great. I wish Casey had been better because he was so strong in his first challenge. And if he'd been as strong in this challenge as he was in the first round he was in, this could have been an all-time classic football challenge on Games Master rather than a very one-sided plus an own goal affair. Because Andy kept saying, you know, throughout this whole thing that he didn't feel like he was sort of particularly confident about this. You know, I've only played a, my son's console for 10 minutes. Oh, this looks a bit different. This Either he's just very adaptable or he's a complete ringer and he is just like working us beautifully by being like, oh no, I've never played a game in my life. I don't know what I'm doing at all. I'm actually fucking brilliant at this, by the way, and I'm going to score five goals. And I'm going to score this amazing chip goal you'll see. It's actually like Vinny Jones in the kind of the king of understatements thing, because Vinny was always playing down his ability and then, you know, two golden joysticks, Vinny. Yeah. Maybe Vinny gave him that hint when they're in the green room. It's like, no, mate, so you're going to suck because then either you can go, well, I did say I didn't play this much. And then if you win, you look like you're kind of like a little bit of a hustler, a little bit of a poker player there. <laughs> Andy, what can I say? Five goals. Amazing. What was your secret? Um, well, the fool was there. We gave him plenty of room and uh, John Aldridge done the business. I know. He was looking about 15 years younger, although as well, wasn't it? <laughs> but I, I have to say, actually, Again, Pat Bonner and goals. He didn't have the best of games, did he? He's still having difficulty holding on to it. No, it's, well, I thought he did uh, quite well. We settled for 5 1. Can't do yeah. more than that. <laughs> That's true. Casey, you said before the challenge your tactics were to score and win. So you're batting 0 for 2. Uh, at the moment, what happened? Absolute nightmare in the back. Um, who, who was in goals? Was it you or Tony uh, Miola? There's no way I was in goal on that one, <laughs> I have to admit. I've been left out of the side for a couple of years now, and I'll. Stay out of the side on that game. <laughs> I felt really bad for Casey in this uh, in this um, post match interview as well because Dominic's like, you know, that wasn't you that was in goal there. You know, Casey, the goalkeeper for the US, and he was just like, no, I've been kept out of the side for a few years now, so it definitely wasn't me. I'm like, oh no, oh dear. Casey's career with the US team and US clubs in general is uh, is a fairly interesting one. We touched on it a little bit during his first appearance. Still, he's doing better now. He's having a good time now. So that's what's the that's the important thing. That's isn't the it? important thing. Yeah, it was a bit season one vibes about that a little bit. You know, when you like we get like the retired darts players or things like the retired boxing players in, and they're just like, oh yeah, I've been taking a lot of losses recently, and it's like, oh no, this feels a bit sad now. Uh, I felt a bit bad for Casey because he just took a five-one drumming, but yeah, great win for Andy, and that is. I loved that challenge. I absolutely loved it because that felt like the future of football games right there. Considering that like FIFA, when we had that back in Series 3, already felt like a giant leap up from Sensi. Yeah, and that was at a point when a new FIFA game coming out every year was still an exciting thing because they were adding new features, new modes, new camera angles, as opposed to where we are now, where not only is it a case of, oh, look, FIFA's got a new hat, but where they do seem to expect you to keep buying hats for the next 12 months before making all those hats worthless because they no longer fit the head of the next year's FIFA. Yeah, fuck yeah. Games Master, I've got a problem with my dad. Could you help me? I'm sorry. I really think you've come to the wrong place. No, no, no. You see, we really love playing level four of Battle Cores on the Mega CD. Except it takes us ages to get there. Could you lend me some advice? Oh, I see. Well, try this. While in practice mode, pause the game and enter the following code. B, A, B, A, R, A, C, R, star. The screen will flash and you'll be given access to a wondrous level select menu. 
Send my regards to your father. Thanks, Games Master. He'll be thrilled. Well, we've got some more actors in the consultation zone this week. I mean, they're always actors, aren't they? But like our first kid here was like, I've got a problem with my dad. No, I think you're in the wrong place for this one. No, it's Battlecore on the Mega CD. My dad loves playing level four of it. Can I get there? And the Games Master says, Now send my regards to your dad. I don't know. I guess maybe they're in the same darts team or maybe they go to the same cricket club. I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I wrote my notes here. That was pretty rubbish. <laughs> I don't think the joke landed. There's not much to say about it. I mean, you know, it's a level select. That is one of the most base level cheats along with infinite lives or infinite energy. Not much to say on Battle Core. It was a core design game published by Time Warner. It was a Mega CD slash Sega CD exclusive and involves giant walking robots, very much like Crazy Ivan and various other Mech Warrior games would go on to be in the future. Games Master, I can't release the very last Merry Man on Benefactor on the Amiga. How can I get him over the gap? Well, this is the only time you've had to perform this trick in the game. I'll forgive you for not knowing it. You need to be humble. Lie across the gap and allow yourself to be used as a bridge. That happy little chap will walk straight across you toward the next part of the level. Personally, I've never let myself get walked over like that. Thank you, Games Master. Nice one. Now, I didn't actually mention this last week when we had Rough and Tumble, but it's nice to see the Amiga get represented somewhat still within Games Master because it's not in the news, it's not in the reviews, but we can still get some Amiga love in the consultation zone. Indeed, and Benefactor was again a newish game at this point developed by Digital Illusion CE, better known nowadays as DICE. Oh, cool. And it was published by Psygnosis, who also just mentioned Crazy Ivan. They developed and published Crazy Ivan, so it kind of all mixes together. It's a mixture between a puzzle game and a platform game, and you can tell by looking at it, there are some similarities to Lemmings, and particularly given the tip that Games Master gives here for your merry man. And it actually reminds me of Sleepwalker. That's what I was going to say. I've had the same thing down in my notes. This is a lot like Sleepwalker. Yeah, because you control the Ben E. Factor, the kind of titular character, if you will, of Benefactor, as he runs around the platforms and he has to avoid the enemy creatures himself whilst pulling switches to kind of like operate gates, extend lands and whatnot, and then freeing the Merry Men, who will then go on a preset mission and you just basically have to make sure that they complete it. And they did clearly plan this as something that could grow and expand because it was developed to support data disks. So the idea that you could actually get add-ons, much like Doom 2 was realistically data disks for Doom. Mm. However, no official data disks were ever published, possibly because the game didn't perform as well as they hoped. There was one unofficial one made available for download in the early days of the internet. So there you go. I really like doing battle with the snake boss and Super Drop Zone on the SNES, but I get bored playing through to him. Can you help me, Games Master? That's an easy one. Go to the option screen, then enter the following level code. 4, 1, 2, 0, 1, 0, 1, 8. And you will find yourself face to face with this fearsome boss. Attacking from both ends of the best package employ here. Okay? Thanks, Games Master. That's massive. Not a game I'm familiar with, Super Drop Zone. I mean, it's the sequel to Drop Zone, so you've got that. There you go. Archer McLean's Drop Zone, it was developed originally for the Atari 8-bit family. 
and published in 1984 by known shovelware merchant US Gold. This was one of their better games, however. It was ported to the Commodore 64, also got released for the NES, the Game Boy, the Game Gear, the Game Boy Color. And then we skip forward a number of years and we have Super Drop Zone, which unsurprisingly is released for the Super Nintendo because it features the word Super in the title. Of course. Although, on the title screen, there is no Super, it's just Drop Zone. It also later saw releases for the Game Boy Advance and the PlayStation. But it's nice to see a game from Archer McLean that doesn't involve snooker. It's a bit, a bit of a nice change, because we've had Drop Zone in this show before, I seem to recall. I can't remember why, though. I'm going to do a quick bit of on-air googling in, of my notes. Oh, it's because we had it reviewed. We had Drop Zone on the NES reviewed back in episode 21 of series 2. Jazz Regnall said it was addictive. Games Master gives the kid a level code, and the kid is very happy. He says... Thanks, Games Master. That's massive. That's massive. Massive it is. Hi, I'm, I'm Rick, and I'm a football manager, a holic, and uh, basically I play them until about four in the morning, every morning, and I see myself as really the, the new Aussie Ardelis, really. That bloke's bird's not going to be too chuffed, because apart from his tragic facial hair, there's a whole batch of stat-filled choose-your team. It's a game of two half-type thingies about to be released. So, to honour our FIFA sort of final, and because football's even better than birds, this is the beginner's guide to football management games. As all the idealist knows, picking the right team is essential. You want a nice blend of skill and brawn with no Mickey Hazard. Players are rated in categories such as passing, heading and flashes of motor. I want good, hard stats in the game. The stats I want to know is, can a defender tackle, can a midfielder pass, and more importantly, can a striker put the ball in the back of the net? However, even Mickey Hazard can be transformed into Paul McStay with a smidgen of care and attention on the training field. With the exception of Sensi World of Soccer, you don't actually control your players in match, you have to sit back and pray. Although most managerial games are kind enough to let you watch some action. And if Mickey Hazard is still having a mare, you can make that crucial tactical change. So it's back to that bloke with the tash and his mate for their personal opinions. So, Marcus, what do you think the championship manager then? Oh, well, Rick, I think it's the best game going. It's just so, so full of numbers. There's no graphics in there. Who needs graphics? What about um, on the ball? On the ball, there's too many graphics for the broth, really. Sensi? Sensi, what a sucker? Sensi's the best. Sensi's got everything. He's got your soccer management and he's got your arcade game. It's just the best. Um, is that fantasy football league? It's supposed to be quite good, isn't it? Um, yeah, but honestly, have we got six friends? No, I don't think so. And then we get a feature on uh, football management sims uh, featuring Rick Henderson, friend of the show, who's uh, he's been on a couple of times. What did you make of this? Let me just establish something and make sure I remember correctly. You've played football management games. Uh, Champ Manager 96, 97, guilty. You've played a lot of them. Oh, I played a lot of Champ Manager 96, 97. My cousin uh, once had a save file on Champ Manager 96, 97 that was so far in the future that all of the players in the sort of like starting database had all retired. So the database had just refreshed itself with, like basically when a a footballer uh, retires in Chat Manager, they just get replaced by someone else who is 18 with the exact same stats and a brand new name and the same nationality in this and the other. He played it for so long that every single player in the database had been reset to brand new players. And he went through and worked out who all the players were. 
like it's just like ah that's ronaldo who's now 22 and he's got these stats um that's how much we were playing champ manager 96 97 i played fifa i played sensi but the football side of things i played a few other football games i don't feel qualified to comment on this feature because just by its very nature this feature left me cold because it yeah. meant nothing to me they talk about Championship Manager 94. They talk about Sensible World of Soccer, which in addition to the more arcadey football side of things, it also has the management side of things. They also mention Fantasy Football League based on the TV show of the same name. I mean, it was okay, I guess, but but the actual feature itself just meant nothing to me, our Vienna. Because afterwards, it just cuts back to Dominic Diamond and he's just like, that's it. I'm off to turn satellite dishes 20 degrees to the left. And the show ends. I was like, I wish we'd have ended on the challenge. I wish we could have had this feature and then and then the consultation and then the challenge to end this off with. Because like the, the consultation zone to kind of like, you know, review the episode as a whole a little bit. I, I didn't really get a lot out of the consultation zone this week. So like that and then this feature off the back of it, like you, I felt just a bit cold off of it. See, I was genuinely hoping going into this that you would go, oh, you know, I played a lot of championship manager. I played a lot of this, that and the other. This was great because, yeah, I didn't really get anything from this feature. And so I was hoping that, you know, much like I've turned you around on some things in the past, I was really hoping you'd do the same here, man. You kind of left me hanging. Yeah, sorry, man. I mean, I feel this is like a flight sim. I, I, I can't get on board with uh, uh, with this, unfortunately. It, it's, it's, um, like it's, it's interesting to hear the guys chat about the games, I guess, but I, this, this feature left me uh, wanting another challenge is basically what I wanted at the end of this. That's it for another show. I'm off to turn satellite receiving dishes at 20 degrees to the left. See you later. Bye-bye. Yeah, and then we get Dominic's closing line, which is good. A very good ending line, I will say. Yeah, yeah, I did appreciate the turning of the 20 degrees. That That's fun. If you've ever had to uh, hand calibrate a satellite dish because it's been dislodged or whatever, oof, that's a, <laughs> that's an experience. Yeah, I didn't have, like, we didn't have cable or anything like that when we were a kid. We just had the four channels and then five once Channel 5 came, rolled around. But my friend had a satellite dish and I was just, it always felt like a, oh, a satellite dish. It was just like it just felt like a, this sort of future technology that I would never have in my house. I mean, I, and you know, now I definitely don't because no one has them anymore. I got a good chuckle just the idea of Dom just going around and whacking various satellite dishes with a stick just to mess people's sky receiving up overnight. It also it takes me back to um, the '90s movies as well when satellite dishes were like the big in thing and. A, a very simple writing trope uh, to kind of tell you everything you need to know about this character's neighbors is how big their satellite dish is. Like small soldiers, the guy next door has got like this ginormous satellite dish and this and the other. So I, I, I kind of, I, it, it took me back to that, which I very much appreciated. But I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. So weird not to have a final challenge. It's so weird to just have the consultation zone, then that feature, and now we're done. And I hate to say it, but we're going to have that again very soon. Yeah, we are. We are, and it's. But like, I feel like the next time we get it, it wasn't the original plan. Whereas this definitely was the original plan because they dedicated so much time to the uh, FIFA challenge. So this was like the intentionally structured to be this way, and it did feel very weird, and a bit discombobulating, like the football, ang- like the camera angles on FIFA on the 3DO. But I liked that 3DO FIFA challenge so much. And I loved the amount of time that it was dedicated to it. And I got a bit of a kick out of the Lion King one as well. Hey, and it's always fun to see Hogan be bad and Pico and and the Aladdin trial. So this for me, I can't even say it was a tale of two halves because it's a tale of three quarters for me. What did you make of it? I love the opening challenge. I really enjoyed the reviews. And yeah, seeing Hogan try and act his way out of a paper bag always funny 
Uh, the consultation zone, I actually kind of liked it, if nothing else, because it gave a couple of games that I hadn't thought about before or even at all. Certainly the game Benefactor is not one I was even aware of, and it is kind of now on those list of games of, oh, I might actually boot this up on the Amiga. It looks like it could be a bit of fun. And the FIFA Challenge was great. Like, I really enjoyed the FIFA Challenge. I really enjoyed seeing 3DO. While it wasn't a great kind of gameplaying classic, it was kind of fun seeing someone getting absolutely slaughtered on FIFA like that. And then that that last feature kind of takes a solid 90 to 93 percent episode and slaps it solidly down into the low to mid 80s for me how about you yeah like 81 was kind of where i was at i'm tempted to go 82 because i enjoyed that fifa challenge so much and i may do 82 just for hogan's tash uh, hogan is awful by the way we should just point that out he's you know we're not i'm not advocating for him he's he's as bad as his mustache looks believe me if we ever bring up or cover hogan in anything we are not going to be batting for the hulkster <laughs> we're definitely going to be batting against the hulkster what you're gonna do when luke and ash run wild on his career so i'm i'm gonna go 82 uh, eight I'm, no, I'm sticking with 81 percent that, that football feature at the end really like it was a cold bucket of water uh, over this episode, unfortunately. We were almost in absolute parity because my written down score was 82. Oh, and I'm going to stick with 82. <laughs> Fair enough. But I think that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule each and every single one of you. You can check us out on social media channels. We're on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to provide some real-time feedback, chat with us, chat with other listeners, chat with other fans of Games Master, gaming, retro and present, or pop culture in general, you can join our Discord server, details of which can be found in the show notes or on our social media. And you can support this podcast monetarily over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra, which is this show, but about other shows. We have done the X-Files recently, the episode Ice, which was so much fun to do. We've also done episodes of Earthworm Jim, Press Gang, Dale Supermarket Sweep, Finders Keepers, The Real Ghostbusters, Gladiators, and more. You'll also get access to Under Console Nation, our monthly community show, where recently we did a commentary track over the x-files pilot episode which was so so much fun we really liked doing and hanging out with you uh doing under console nation and if you back us at five pounds you get next week's episode one week early and ad free but at the 10 pound level you get a little bit extra ash what do they get oh at the 10 pound level they get a patreon exclusive mug and inside that mug they get patreon exclusive stickers and badges retro sweeties retro trading cards and £5 off our first Under Consultation t-shirt, which can be bought along with other mugs, stickers and badges from our website, underconsultation.com. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthol, William, Simon, Sean, Hannon, Sean Dunn, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Robert, Rich, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boo, Kevin, Jamie, Gordon, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Colin, Cliff, Adam Warrington, Adam Rigby, and Adam D. You all rule. I love all of you. We'll see you in seven days' time for Ridge Racer. Take care, everyone. <laughs>
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.